I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Um, I'm here to make the case for squatters, uh, which may seem like a uh, kind of contradictory thing to do in a city that's uh, so affordable. Um, but it, uh, there's actually a way in which it makes great sense. This very site, Fort Mason, was occupied by squatters in the 1850s. Much of San Francisco was founded by squatters. Uh, there's a great history of that, and in fact, in my mind, uh, September 27th should be a holiday in San Francisco because that's the day the Van Ness Ordinance was passed, which legalized a lot of squatters in the city. So there's a real squatter heritage in uh, San Francisco, and so I think it's very apt that I'm here giving this talk. Um, now, part of what I want to do tonight is propose, you're going to hear a lot of things about conditions in communities that sound horrific. And indeed, they are horrific. But I'm proposing that we think about these horrific conditions not in the way that is normal, which is, oh, how horrible and how we have to fix them, or throw up our hands and say how horrible it's not possible to fix them, but rather to look at them as an opportunity, that people are doing their best, the squatters are doing their best to house themselves in a world that won't provide housing for them. And we have to meet them halfway. So that's my proposal for what governments, world organizations, the UN, the NGOs, everyone needs to figure out how to meet the squatters halfway because they're doing their part. And uh, I'm going to launch into this. I'm gonna, tonight I'm planning to read some, talk some, show some pictures, and uh, then we'll take some questions at the end. I want to start out by reading something from my book, which is essentially the worst-case scenario. One glimpse is enough. You have discovered the famous misery of the third world, a sea of homes made from earth and sticks rising from, from primeval mud puddle streets. Massive numbers of people live here, somewhere between 500,000 and a million souls. Many have lived here for decades, but half the residents are under the age of 16. All, old and young, new arrivals and long-term residents live without running water, without sewers, without sanitation, or toilets. Piles of trash line every alley and avenue, giving the neighborhood its trademark look, a motley patina of red dirt, green mango peels, and the festive but faded colors of thousands of discarded plastic bags. Chickens and goats wander by and scratch at the heaps for food. Upon occasion, to reduce the load, someone will rake some of the garbage into a pile, push it to the side or against a mud wall, and set it on fire. 
These smoldering mounds pose the biggest danger to the community, that the flames will spread to the dry wood of the huts. But what else is there to do with the trash? There's no one around to pick it up. The farther in you go, the more the community slides into the stagnant, swollen valley. On one downhill slope, sewage sluices underneath a pack of water pipes. At a rickety river crossing, a vast store of discarded plastic bags has bunched up in the flow. Back on the main road, a man with a wheelbarrow parks in the muck. He's doing a brisk business selling small vacuum-packed cardboards of milk, cardboard pyramids of milk. Another hustles by, his cart filled with cases of Fanta. The bottles teeter and clank as he bounces his barrow across the scarred track. A fellow in a bloody apron slogs through with a side of beef on his back, headed for one of the butcher shops where the meat will hang without refrigeration, slowly drying and attracting flies as the proprietor cuts portions for customers. With a backfire and a blast of soot, an old-fashioned gasoline engine throbs to life. It powers what's called a pasho mill for grinding white corn into fine flour destined to be made into ugali, the staple food here. Next door, a man with an ancient iron filled with charcoal is putting a crease in a pair of gray wool pants. Across the muddy road, under a narrow awning, three men are hammering at thin steel sheets, bending and riveting, forming large carrying cases that can, in a pinch, double as tables. And in the midst of all this, on whatever piece of solid ground they can find, people have stoked wood fires. Some are frying fish or french fries. Others are scorching massive bones over a high heat prior to boiling them to make gelatin or bone meal. Still other small entrepreneurs are grilling corn over charcoal or selling bundles of sukuma wiki, which means push the week, a slang name for collard greens or kale, because you can buy it for as little as one shilling a bunch, and that pushes your family through another week. Silent street merchants sit behind their stocks of greenish-red mangoes or mottled plum tomatoes that they have painstakingly set in small piles, three on the bottom, two on top of them, and one precariously on the very top, on a piece of canvas or cardboard to keep them out of the mud. The salesperson periodically produces a scrap of fabric and lovingly polishes each fruit to make it look its best. So... What we're seeing is some pretty horrific conditions, and I'm going to show you some pictures of what I believe are the cities of tomorrow. This is Kibera in Nairobi, and this is what I wrote that little introduction about. And it's pretty primitive. Another picture of Kibera. This is Mumbai in India. This is the squatter community in Borivali National Park. And this is another view of it. These are sprawling communities. And here 
is Jocinha in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, we're looking from the top of the hill down at the rest of the squatter community. And the high-rise buildings in the background are a middle-class neighborhood. And this is Sultan Bailey in Istanbul. It's a squatter community of about 300,000 people. So I consider these communities to be the new urban world. These are the cities of the future and squatters are building them. And why I say that is because of people like Julius. This is Julius. And when I first met Julius, I was at the end of my stay in Nairobi and I fancied myself an expert on the city. And he was coming with some friends of mine as we were traveling to a uh, squatter community across the city from the one in which I was living. And Julius was bug-eyed. He was looking around like Nairobi was the strangest place in the universe. And he reached out at one point and held my hand almost like for dear life as we were walking through downtown Nairobi. And the reason I found out later was because it was his first day in the city. And indeed, in this picture, which was taken a couple of days later, it's the little girl that's leading Julius around the community. She's introducing him to Kibera. Now, the day Julius came to Kibera, he was one of probably 300 people that arrived in Nairobi that day. Close to 200,000 people around the world, in countries around the world, leave the rural area for the city every day. And if you do the math, that's about a million and a half people a week or close to 70 million people a year. And to put that in perspective, that's 130 people every minute. So rural to urban migration is huge. And it happens for one major reason, and it's the reason why Julius came and the reason why all the people that I interviewed in my book are squatters. There's no money to be made in the rural area. You can have subsistence agriculture, but you can't make any money to live. And squatters come to the city, well, I shouldn't say squatters, people come to the city for an economic reason, and they're able to find a job in the city, but they can't find housing that they can afford. So they seize land and build for themselves. And that's the dynamic that's feeding these vast communities that I believe are the cities and the neighborhoods of the future. Now, overall statistics. Today there are a billion squatters in the world and that's almost one in six people on the planet. In 2030, there'll be two billion. And that's about one in four people on the planet. And 45 years from now, there'll be 3 billion, and that's somewhere between 33% and 50% of 
the people on earth. The numbers are rising. Which is why it's important that when they come to the city, no, no government's building for these people. They don't have the money. No private developer's building for these people because they can't pay enough in rent or to buy. And so they build for themselves. And the kind of things that they start out building are, as I said in the beginning, extremely primitive. This is Kenya. And these are some pretty rudimentary mud huts. Put up some sticks and then smash mud on it and you have your house. This is Mumbai. This man is ready for the monsoon. Uh, and he's making sure that he's going to put plastic on his roof so that water doesn't get into his hut. This is Bernard Nzao, who is from Nairobi, Kenya. He's a uh, owner, actually, a what they call a structure owner. He doesn't own the land, but he does own his little hut. And uh, his is in a little better condition, as you can see. He maintains it somewhat better. And he's lived there since 1963. And this is how you secure the roof. This is Mumbai again. Uh, put down the plastic and weight it with rocks so that the uh, wind doesn't blow it away. Now when you develop some staying power, you begin to build things like this. You scavenge somewhat better materials. This is in Rocinha in Rio de Janeiro. Um, as you can see, the uh, owner of this structure has foraged for tile to put on the roof, and even plastered some of the outside of uh, what's called a barraca, a small hut. This is a somewhat better hut. That's my friend Suleiman Akaya in uh, Sultanbeyli in Turkey. And uh, that's a pretty decent uh, home. It's all plastered on the outside. It's got brand new roofing tile. And he's done pretty well with it, but it still is small. Then you begin to get more. This is back in Rio de Janeiro. Once people have the ability to stay, once they see that they're not going to be evicted, they begin to build with better materials. So you see the rebar sticking up from the buildings, they're reinforcing the concrete and they're using brick to build their houses. Uh, well, I'll get to that. There is electricity in the community. Um, and uh, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and this is a larger picture of uh, Josinha. And... Uh, grab this pointer. Um, you can see that with buildings like this, they're really building up. Um, and uh, what people do is they build their first story and then they sell the roof rights to someone else who builds on top, who then sells the roof rights to someone else who builds on top of that. 
and this is how the community advances in height. And it becomes, the title of my talk was The 21st Century Medieval City, it becomes very much, in my mind, like uh, a self-built version of the kind of uh, medieval or Renaissance Italian hill towns where you get these uh, strange towers and uh, very convoluted street plans, and uh, this reminds me of that. Um, so this is uh, Brazil. And then, when people get a little more, they even start building in recreation. And this is called the Praça dos Skate, uh, or skateboarding, or rollerblading, and you can see there's a uh, half pipe here that uh, was built in, and... Uh, some kid took a fall on the half pipe. Um, and again, the building up and up and up of the houses. This is Sultan Bailey. And uh, it's even more urbanized. It's got streets. You can see cars and trucks. And you can also see the way people build is that they build higher than is actually lived in. So the top floor here is not yet occupied. And they build to a fairly high style. I mean, that's a rather stylish building with these little balconies on the edges. Uh, it's all built by squatters. No one owns the property there. Uh, they're just building up. I should say that all this, what looks like uh, crud in the front of the photo there, is uh, mattress stuffing. People air out their mattresses. They use mattresses filled with this uh, material and then they uh, air it out every so often on their roofs. So I'm standing on someone's roof taking this picture. Um, so. And finally, you get squatters who build things like this. This is also Sultan Bailey. And this is uh, kind of a rather idyllic uh, setting, a very... Nicely designed home with a lot of architectural detailing and a big garden. Um, so given time and uh, the ability to stay put, the squatters really invest in their communities and their homes. So how do you get around these rather crowded communities? This is Rio de Janeiro, and this is a typical pathway through the squatter community. It's called Baco, and uh, most of them have, they started out as mud paths up the hillsides, but they've now been concreted over because there are so many people living in the community. Rocinha has a population of about 150,000 people. So, this is an entrance to someone's house. And you can see that they just cantilevered their building right over the rock. Um, so they're very efficient in how they do these things. And the path zigzags up the hill, uh, perhaps reminiscent of Lombard Street. Um, and uh, uh, it's very narrow, and you run into places where you have to cut back, and it's quite steep. Um, this is Kibera in Kenya. And uh, you can see it's real busy. Uh, there's a lot of businesses going on in the squatter communities. One thing that uh, people don't seem to understand about uh, these communities is that there's a tremendous amount of economic activity. And uh, 
If we look at the businesses here, you've got a health clinic, you've got a beauty salon, you've got a general store, you've got a bar, you've got another salon, and you've got a church. All, uh, you know, packed in along this uh, little main street. Uh, People bringing all these products into the community are backed up because there's a, a big mud puddle down here, and they're all, there's only one secure track through the mud puddle, and so they're, uh, they're waiting to go through. It's like the uh, primitive version of a traffic jam. Uh, there's another pathway in uh, Kibera. Uh, you can see the houses are quite close together, and you've got to zip through them. Uh, this is uh, Mumbai. These are pavement dwellers. These are people who build their houses right on the sidewalk. Uh, this is a neighborhood called uh, Baikala. And uh, these people have mostly lived here for 25 years or more. And they build these wooden structures. And you can see they have little balconies, uh, which is mostly where they sleep. And the ladders go up to the balconies. Um, and there are whole communities that live this way for, as I said, decades uh, on the sidewalks of, uh, of Mumbai. And uh, back to Turkey, this is Sultan Beli. Um, again, Turkey, the squatter communities seem to be built in a very pragmatic, planned manner. They lay out the streets, and literally you can get a car to almost every home. And the, this is a relatively new neighborhood in Sultan Beli called Batal Ghazi. Uh, so there's a tremendous amount that's still under construction. Um, again, it's all squatter. So this is Rosinha uh, in Rio de Janeiro. And again, there's a main street running through it with municipal bus service. Um, now, Stuart was asking about all these wires and uh, what goes on with that. Uh, I'll show you right now. This is a typical lamppost in Rosinha. And uh, they have what are known as gatos, which literally means cat in Portuguese, but uh, is the word, the argo for a thief of electrical power. And basically, they go to wherever the main electrical lines are and they steal electricity. And uh, thus, all these crazy wires uh, running off the pole. Um, what has happened uh, wonderfully in Rio is that the utility recognized that all these people stealing power were not necessarily criminals, they were potential ratepayers. And so they went to the people in the community and said, we will spend the money to upgrade your electrical service to give you completely adequate electrical service if you take a meter. And that's been going on for the past couple of years. Most people in Rosinha are accepting that deal. And so now the electricity in the squatter community is fully up to code and uh, up those concrete pathways that I uh, showed you in an earlier slide are utility poles, and they're bringing electricity to every house, uh, adequate metered electricity, and people are paying their bills. 
Uh, I should say that in some other countries, it's not that easy. Uh, in Kenya, if you steal current from the passing electrical pole, you will be prosecuted and thrown in jail. Um, and I'll get to later on in the talk that uh, governments have to begin to figure out how to work with squatters rather than criminalize what they do. Um, this is another infrastructure issue, and uh, this is Kibera in Kenya, and that over there is a trash fire. Uh, what do you do with garbage when the city doesn't pick up your garbage? Where do you put it? Well, you burn it a lot of times, and that's what they do, and uh, there's a big danger of fire in the community because of that. Uh, sewage is another issue. This is a uh, runoff channel and sewage channel in Kibera, and that door there is the door to a pit latrine. People don't have toilets, they have latrines. Uh, and when the latrines get fill, full and no one has the money to empty them, people use what they artfully but uncomfortably call flying toilets. And what a flying toilet is, is you urinate or defecate in a plastic bag and you tie it up and you fling it as far from your house as possible. <laughs> And uh, Kenyans laugh when they describe it as well. They're rather uncomfortable with it. Um, and as you can see, uh, these sewage channels get kind of plugged up with stuff. Um, these are actually entrances to homes. So people live uh, with some pretty degraded infrastructure in Kibera. Uh, this is a river and a lot of sewage flowing right in between the uh, houses. And this was right outside my best friend in uh, Kibera's house. Uh, this is a sewage creek, um, also getting filled up with all the flying toilets and other plastic bags. Um, this was India, and the community that I lived in in India had managed to create its own halfway decent sewage channels, and this fellow is cleaning them. Um, so they have concreted over their pathways, and they've created little canals for the runoff and sewage to run through. Sadly, most people in this community, um, they they, they're worried about these sewage channels. Most people have installed full toilets in their houses but they don't use them because they're worried that the waste would clog up these small sewage channels and would create health problems. So they were hoping that they would get the municipality to come in and install sewers, and that hasn't happened, even though there's been a tremendous amount of middle-class development in the area around where this community exists. But the uh, government of Mumbai has never extended the sewers to this community. And there's always the primitive way of getting waste disposed of. Uh, you find this in India and in Kenya that there are a tremendous number of pigs that eat a lot of garbage uh, in the squatter communities. Um, I should just note parenthetically that I enjoy this photo because 
I was walking by and I said, wow, pigs, and I turned around and I took the photo and I didn't even see this, which is this wonderful little headless uh, god statue or goddess statue. Um, why it's there, I'm not really sure, but you do find religious uh, uh, icons and symbols in the oddest of places in India. And uh, water, this is uh, how Brazilians bring the water into their squatter communities, into the favelas. Uh, there's water pipes running up the hill. Basically what they've done is once, they, once the gatos put all those wires in and they got electricity, they installed electric pumps. And other gatos went and connected these pipes to the water main. And there are huge packs of plastic pipes running up the hill. So here they are running across a spring, which is also a sort of sewage outflow. The, these pipes here are sewer pipes from people's houses that just drop into the water running down the hill. These are packs of water pipes, and this little hut right here contains a pump. And uh, basically, you have a tank on the roof, and you... Uh, turn on the pump when you need to fill the tank. And then the, uh, the house is served by the gravity flow from the tank on your roof. Uh, and they're pretty good at uh, building these systems. My experience uh, was kind of, I think, a good illustration. In, my, in the apartment I lived in, uh, I was taking a shower one day and the water ran out. And so I toweled off and uh, got dressed, and I went uh, to see Seu Antonio, who had built the house. And Seu Antonio, went, we went up to the roof, and we looked at the uh, caixa or tank, and it was mostly full. And we were trying to figure out why there was no water running in my, uh, my apartment. So it turned out that my apartment was a new addition to the house, and it was extra demand. And he had only built his system to be adequate for the, uh, the prior units that he had in the house. So what well, he, he did all sorts of things. He shook the pipes, and he uh, rattled the pipes, and he kicked the pipes. And finally what he did is he went into the kitchen turned on the water tap, nothing came out, and he leaned down and put his mouth to it and sucked. And we heard this gurgling noise, and then water came out. Um, so every time my water ran off, I had to go and suck the pipes in order to get water. And Seo Antonio felt very bad about this, and he came to me later and said that what he really needed to do was to install a wider gauge pipe and to... Um, Move the water tank. The water tank was on the level just below the roof in what they called the lage. And he needed to move it up higher so that there was more gravity feed. And if he did that, then I would no longer have to suck the pipes. But I was going to have to wait because he didn't have enough money to do that, so he would only do that when he had enough money to do it. Um, so people are pretty ingenious at this, and they make these systems work. And this is another example uh, again, the water pipes running along the pathway. 
Again, you see this is a house, and it's cantilevered over the pathway. Um, and you see water pipes running up from, there's a pump in this little uh, area here, and that pipe takes it to the tank on the roof. Uh, and this is indeed part of the tank. Um, now there's a subtext in this photo that I want to talk about. Um, it's a bit of a tangent, uh, but it is an important reality in Brazil. Praça Timão Enoix, Seve. I didn't realize that that was there when I took this picture, and I probably shouldn't have taken this picture. Timão means helm or helmsman, and Praça Timão sort of means the, the captain's plaza. Enoix is the slogan of a violent drug gang known as the Comando Vermelho. Most of the favelas in Rio de Janeiro are operating points for drug gangs. Um, the reason that this exists is it's an opportunistic infection. It's not that the majority of squatters are drug addicts or drug dealers. It's that the government of the city refused to police the illegal communities. And so drug gangs realized, hey, we can operate there and they'll never come. So they are very strong in the squatter community. And if you go live in a favela in Rio, you have to be prepared for guys with guns being around. I would come out of Seo Antonio's house uh, on certain days, and there'd be five guys with AK-47s outside my house. And they weren't there for me. They were there to police a uh, movement of marijuana and cocaine. Um, most of what moves through Rio is destined for export to the United States or Western Europe. And uh, it's a situation that the favelados accept because the drug gangs over the years have learned how to be communitarian. They fund programs for kids, they fund child care, they build soccer fields, they put in, uh, right around the corner from where I lived in uh, Rosinha, they installed a soccer field with floodlights so you could play all night. Um, and they also make sure that there's absolutely no street crime in the squatter community. So in a city that can be very dangerous, um, and there are assaults written about uh, that happen in broad daylight throughout the legal neighborhoods of the city, there's no crime in, or I can't say no, but there's almost no crime in the favelas at all. And uh, it's a, a trade-off that the residents have learned to accept. Um, it's also true that the drug gangs are probably more honorable and easier to deal with than the police. The police in Rio are not your friends, and you never want to spend a lot of time with them. And I want to read you a brief thing about 
uh, my first run-in with the police in Rio. Onde você mora? Where do you live? The gun was an automatic, and the cop had it pushed into the crevice under my ribcage. This was my second day in. Everything was new. It was raining, the kind of rain that isn't really rain, but more like 100% humidity, like thick ooze emerging spontaneously from every object. It was dusk, and the cars, the people, the stalls selling pirated merchandise, even the noise from everything and everyone around me seemed glazed and far away. Onde você mora? I hardly understood the question. I didn't know where I lived. I had just arrived. I couldn't speak the language. Although I had my, rehearsed my Portuguese before I left, my brain shut down. I didn't know a goddamn thing. The cop pushed the gun harder against my chest. It was a modern handgun. The plastic barrel wasn't cold against my skin. I didn't have a sense of imminent death. I didn't experience any film noir cliches. Onde você mora? I looked over at Paul, who was on the other side of the bus shelter. I hardly knew the guy, but he had been living in Rosinha for a while and seemed comfortable there. He, too, had a gun against his stomach. He was standing like a scarecrow, arms straight out, and the cop was shouting at him and jabbing the gun in his gut. Onde você mora? My cop shouted again. My brain started slowly. Be polite. Show respect. Use the third person singular. Con você? I croaked. It was instinct, pure fear, blind, and totally wrong. Comigo? The cop asked. Si, con você. I wish I could say it was intentional. I wish I could say I knew what I was doing. Where do you live? The cop was shouting, and I had answered this way. I live with you. <laughs> with you, motherfucker, with your mother. <laughs> he didn't pull the trigger. Instead, his eyes changed, and it seemed that a little light went on in his brain. And he finally realized that this strange gringo with a shaved head who was walking out of the favela was most likely not a viciado or drug addict, not a traficante or drug dealer, but most likely simply an incredibly stupid white man. <laughs> now con você, con ele, he corrected me, still angry. Not with me, with him, he waved his gun at Paul. The cops kept us there for 20 minutes. They made Paul recite the names of the people he knew in Rosinha. He went through dozens of names until he mentioned someone they knew. Jose Valdo, the driver for the city's regional administrator. That was when they put away their guns and let us go. And I realized then that there were a dozen people waiting in the bus shelter to avoid the rain. They were all standing within a few feet of us None of them said or did anything, and they didn't even move away from the guns. And it occurred to me that this, for them, was normal, average, ordinary, simply a fact of everyday life. And it's why many favela dwellers don't like the police. Um, so the police are not your friends. Um, and I had several run-ins with them when I was there. Um,
But it's also true that the drug dealers are dangerous too. And uh, uh, I'll read you a little bit about that. Um, dusk, I walked down to the base of Rosinia. It was Saturday, and there had been a street fair along the Camino dos Boyaderos, one of the main shopping streets of the favela. Now most of the merchants were packing up. The road was greasy with trampled lettuce leaves and leavings from various butchers who were hosing down their cutting blocks. It was a pleasant night, and the streets were crowded. At the bottom of the hill, in a wide space known as Largo dos Boyaderos, opposite a Catholic church, a kid was outlined in the half-light. He stood next to a man who had set up a hibachi and was selling skewers of grilled meat. He was skinny, with long blonde hair, and he was wearing baggy Bermuda shorts, flip-flops, and no shirt. Across his shoulders was a long strap that ran down across his concave, hairless chest. The strap was connected to an AK-47. He wore it low like a rock star right over his pelvis. In Rosinha, the guys with guns come out at night. Some stand as solo sentinels, others congregate in packs of ten or more. A few have pistols, sleek nine-millimeter jobs that are light enough for kids to stick in the elastic waistbands of their Bermudas. But most carry weapons that would make even a terrorist or a revolutionary drool with envy. AK-47s, AR-15s, M-16s, submachine guns, even grenades. You usually see them on the streets where the drug trade is active, in locations called bocas de fumo, or mouths of smoke. Because of its size, Rosinha had many bocas. The main one is in the Valao, and there are dozens of guys with guns there at the Friday night dance parties. But there was another boca on the Via Appia, one of the favela's main commercial streets, where young men sold papelotes, little paper sacks of cocaine or marijuana. And there was a boca higher up on the hill at Rua Um, or First Street. And there was also a boca on my street, where the gunmen appeared two or three nights a week. Now, when you see them for the first time, the weapons don't look real. They seem like cartoon killing machines with oversized, bent-billed bullet clips hanging off absurdly tiny barrels. And the comic book image is enhanced when the guns are clutched by pimply adolescents or moon-faced teenagers who silently watch as families return from church or children run by kicking a soda bottle soccer ball. But they're not caricatures because those guns will pierce a bulletproof vest at a great distance. Valeria Cristina, who owns a jewelry and eyeglasses emporium, came to Rosinha because of the guys with guns. She used to live and work in Rio's ritzy Flamingo neighborhood. But after armed robbers assaulted her store and cleaned out her entire inventory, she closed up shop and relocated to the favela. And Valeria Cristina was frank about the reason she fled the legal city. I wanted a more secure location, she said cheerfully as she sat amid the mirrors and stylish designer frames in her bright new store. In the rest of the city, being assaulted was always a risk, she explained. Muggings and robberies were common. Thieves had even been known to pull knives and guns in broad daylight on the city's buses. 
and to beat up tourists on the crowded beaches for their backpacks and valuables. But in the squatter communities, things are different. If someone broke in or tried to rob this store, she said, smiling broadly, they would die. Now, Rio's favelas are ruled by three drug gangs, the Comando Vermelho, which means Red Command, the Tercero Comando, which means Third Command, and the Amigos Dos Amigos, Friends of Friends. And in the early days, these drug gangs were very similar to, if anyone's seen the movie City of God, in the early days, these drug gangs were very similar to that. That is a reality of the drug gangs in the 80s. They were just a bunch of guys with a talent for selling drugs and some handguns. Um, but they're now much more organized and much better armed. And uh, the Comando Vermelho still controls most of the drug trade in Rio. And when I was living in Jocinho, Jocinho was part of their empire. And they were fairly enlightened and good guys. But um, I can tell you without a doubt that this graffiti is no longer there. Because since I left Rosinha, there was a war. A bad guy got out of jail and decided to come and take over Rosinha. There were shootouts in the streets. There were people who died in the crossfire, innocent people. And Rosinha is now the territory of the drug gang Amigos Dos Amigos. Um, and uh, this is something that the favela dwellers have had to live with. Um, they also have to live with shootouts between the cops and the drug dealers from time to time. So it's not always a pretty picture, but people accept it because, first of all, the guys have guns, and second of all, they do make the community, when there's not a drug war going on, safe. And they spend for public improvements. So um, it is an ever-present reality in Rio de Janeiro, and it's important for people to understand it. Um, and it was important for me to understand it also. Um, I had uh, you know, maybe I'm a bad reporter, but uh, when I got to Rosinha, people talked a tremendous amount about there being a clandestine graveyard in the jungle above the squatter community. And great story, right? You know, go find it, report on it. And I never did. I uh, had another beer at the restaurant, or I played basketball with my friends, or I uh, uh, went and did another interview. I did everything that I could not to go. Um, can I say that the rumors were right and that there was a clandestine graveyard up there? I don't know. But I do know two things. One is, I took some friends around the favela, and uh, they were infrastructure experts. One was Egyptian, and uh, another was French. And they were fascinated by, in one of the main bocas de fumo, the uh, drug dealing locations, there's the 10 foot wide sewage trench. It gives the area its name, Valao, which stands for that sewage trench. And they were fascinated by that, and they wanted to take a photo. And I looked around, and there didn't seem to be any drug dealing going on. So I said, sure, take a photo. And then we went on walking, and we were, you know, it's a 
fairly sizable community. There's defined neighborhoods. Uh, and we were in a completely different neighborhood. Valin was at the bottom of the hill. We were way at the top of the hill. And this guy emerges from the shadows. And he grabs my friend by his shirt and says, why were you taking pictures of my house? And my friend didn't understand Portuguese, so I got uh, in between. And uh, I said, I don't, I don't know you. Where's your house? And he said, down there, down in the Valau. Which was, I, I managed to convince him that, uh, you know, we were ignorant researchers who were just interested in sewage. But... But that's how they sent the message. We know what you're doing. We can find you wherever you are. And uh, they have a network of watchers and observers, and so they knew that we took a picture of their house. And the second thing I know is that um, if you go up against them, it doesn't matter who you are. Three months after I left Rio, the most prominent television journalist in Rio, a fellow named Tim Lopez, was doing an undercover show about the funk dance parties that are sponsored by the drug gangs. And he had been given a tip that the drug dealers were uh, forcing uh, girls to have sex with them at these dance parties. And he went in with a hidden camera undercover and disappeared. And three months later, they identified his remains through DNA testing on ashes found in a clandestine cemetery at, up in the hills above one of the squatter communities in Rio. So these things exist. And uh, you know, when you go in, you have to recognize what the rules are in the community. And it doesn't matter how prominent you are. If they want to come after you, they do. It wouldn't have been any insurance for me that I was American. So it's a, it's a reality for people. And uh, it's worth noting that reality in its true shape rather than uh, trying to gloss over it and say that it's nothing. So, anyway, long digression about drug gangs. Um, but they do exist. Only in Rio, though. The other communities, uh, I never found anything of the sort. Uh, criminality didn't seem to exist. So... More water pipes, running over sewage. And uh, you can see that uh, there's tons of thievery of water. So uh, that's how the community gets its water in Brazil. Um, there's a tremendous amount of commerce in these communities. And it's also one of the misunderstood items about uh, squatter communities is that people think they're cesspools of misery. Uh, this is the linear shopping mall by the train tracks in Kibera in Kenya. This goes on for kilometers, and uh, merchants selling everything from uh, shoes to used clothing to vegetables to uh, printed fabric to all sorts of things. And uh, every so often a train comes through and people get out of the way. This is Toy Market on the edge of Kibera. This is a huge marketplace. This is in the rain, but it's a huge marketplace for produce and hardware. Um, very haphazard, as you can see. Uh, most of the merchants here are squatters. Uh, most of the merchants live in Kibera. And uh, 
They're doing a brisk business, buying and selling things. Those uh, green things in the foreground are mangoes. Uh, the Kenyan mangoes are green. Um, and they tend to eat them somewhat hard uh, with, with salt or, or hot pepper. It's kind of interesting. It's good. Um, this looks like a picture of another sewage outflow in Kibera, but actually you see that thing on the right uh, is a hotel, yes? Um, but what they mean by hotel is not what we mean as hotel. A hotel in Kenya and in India is a restaurant. And there are hotels all over the squatter communities uh, of Kenya and India. I ate in many hotels uh, in Kenya and India. Um, didn't eat in this one. It was a little too close to the sewage for my taste. But uh, I do have to say, and, uh, you know, uh, never got sick from eating in the hotels and the squatter communities. Um, so uh, the food there agreed with me for whatever reason. Um, this hotel is sharing space right next to it is a butcher shop. And that's rather common in uh, the squatter communities, too, uh, particularly in Kenya, where people like what they call niyama choma, or grilled meat. Um, so the grilled meat will be cut up by the butcher and then served in the hotel. Um, and they often are tandem like this. So there's a tremendous amount of commerce, and it goes from rather primitive stuff to rather fancy stuff. This is Sultan Bailey. Uh, in Istanbul. Um, that's a general store there, bazaar. Um, there's a furniture store on the left-hand side of the picture. Um, and uh, you find everything in Sultan Bailey. You find car dealerships. You find hardware stores. You find uh, uh, tons of restaurants. There's a post office. Uh, it's got, uh, you don't have to leave the community to buy almost anything. Um, and as you can see in the, uh, the building with the, uh, the bazaar in it, there's actually businesses on several of the floors. So it's like an office building. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of uh, commerce in all of these communities, and people are making their money, uh, albeit illegally. So here's the question. How do you go from this to this or even this. And uh, just as a parenthesis, that's not Hitler or Mussolini, that's Ataturk. Uh, although he is pointing out of town, um, <laughs> which some people think is, uh, you know, Sultan Bailey, the politics of Sultan Bailey are weird. It's a squatter community that's fundamentalist Muslim. Um, and they put up the statue of Ataturk because they want to be able to show the powers that be that they are uh, Kemalists and uh, secular, even though they are religious. Uh, but they did put him up pointing out of town. So uh, it functions both ways. Um, now, my argument is that there are two things that need to happen to get development to happen in squatter communities. The first is that people need a guarantee that they're not going to be evicted. If people think that they can be evicted tomorrow or with, uh, uh, automatically by government or by uh, property owners with no recourse whatsoever, they are not going to invest in their homes. 
now, that doesn't mean that people necessarily need property rights. Uh, there's been a, a couple of years ago, there was a rather popular book that was published by Hernando de Soto called The Mystery of Capital. And he argues that uh, it would be magical if you just gave all squatters property rights, their communities would blossom. Um, but the middle picture there, Josinha, people don't have property rights and they build. And the far right picture, Sultan Bailey, people don't have property rights and they build. So the determinant here is not whether you have a title deed. The determinant is whether you know that you're not going to be arbitrarily evicted. Um, what the legalists and the United Nations refer to as security of tenure. Now, how that is established is uh, often unofficial. People just know. There's no written guarantee that says that the favela dwellers in Brazil or the uh, Geje Kandu dwellers in Turkey um, are immune from eviction. They just know. The second thing that people need is access to politics. And the prime example of that is Turkey. Turkey has two quirks of law that make life pretty good for squatters. The first is what's called the Gece Kandu law. Gece Kandu is a Turkish word that's a combination of two words. Gece means night, Kandermak means to happen. So it literally means it happened at night. And if you build your house overnight and the authorities don't catch you and you're in and it's considered habitable by morning, you can't be thrown out without due process of law. It's true. So that gives, there was this, for a long time, there was this cat and mouse game. There was a police squad in Istanbul that would go out and try to seek out squatters who were invading land and catch them in the middle of the night before they were able to build. And the squatters responded by using quick drying concrete and all sorts of uh, fancy technology to be able to build quicker and be in before they got caught. Um, and uh, so that's the first law. The second quirk of Turkish law that's, I think, even more important is that once you have 2,000 people in a community, you can petition the federal government to make you a legal sub-municipality. So Sultan Bailey, no one owns, all the houses are illegal, no one has permission to build there. Sultan Bailey is a legal city. It has a popularly elected mayor and a government. It has the right to collect taxes and provide public services. So Tanbeli has a public works department. It runs municipal bus service and does all this by collecting fees from the residents who recognize that the government is providing things for them. This gives Turkey's squatters access to politics. Uh, the other squatter communities that I was in don't have that same access. In Brazil, people band together and form residence associations, and then they broker their votes to various politicians for services and things like that. But they don't have the same ability to organize politically that the squatters in Turkey do. And 
in Kenya, which is the far left on this slide, uh, people don't seem to have any access to politics at all. Uh, partially it's because most decisions are national decisions in Kenya. Even small decisions about the fate of communities in Nairobi require acts of parliament. And uh, it's... Uh, Politics in Kenya is the zone of the elite, sadly. Um, the member of parliament who represents this squatter community of Kibera is a rich man who doesn't live there. So uh, representative politics are awful hard in Kenya. Um, I would argue that the squatters need a lot of organizing to be able to move forward in Kenya. But we can talk about that more during the question and answer period. So. I believe that the future of these communities needs to be determined by the people on the ground. And these are the people that I see as the civic leaders of the future. The woman in the middle is Gita Jiwa. She is a Mumbai squatter. She lives in a tent on a highway median. She's lived there for six years. She's very outspoken. And given the appropriate empowerment, could be a great leader for her community. Across the way, in a slightly better location, this is Shereka Gundi. She and her family also live in a tent, but instead of being on the median strip, they're alongside the access road of the highway, so they have a slightly better location. Um, uh, and uh, she's also very outspoken about her needs. This is her whole family. Although my friend Raju would not forgive me if I didn't point out the guy in the shiny shirt and the uh, chino pants that are clean, he's also a squatter, but he was acting as a translator for me. Um, so he's not part of her family. He's a taxi driver, actually, who uh, lived nearby to where I lived. This is uh, Lakshmi. She's a pavement dweller. She's a member of an organization called the Slum and Shack Dwellers International. And she, although for 25 years she's been living in this little hut on the sidewalks of a neighborhood called Nagpada, she's been with the members of uh, SDI. She's been to New York. She's been to Cambodia. She's been to South Africa. She's been around the world. She's been to more countries than I've been to. And uh, she still lives on the pavement. Uh, in her little shack with her parrot outside. Uh, this is a Turkish squatter. Uh, there were three old ladies who lived in houses right next to each other, and I knew them only as Nene, which means grandma. Um, and uh, she's very proud of her house and very proud of her garden, and she proudly posed for a number of pictures for me. She's in her 70s, and... Uh, you know, lives in her Gejekandu house all alone. Um, I should note, however, that uh, expenses got a little much for her, and so she actually uh, she gave up having electricity uh, because it was too expensive for her, and so she's living without electricity. Uh, this is Richard, Richard Muthyama, and Richard is like the great uh, PR man for Kibera in Kenya. He's a roving street photographer. He makes his money by taking pictures of people. He sells the pictures for 50 cents a snapshot. 
and uh, that's his business. And uh, I was hoping to have enough money to be able to pay Richard to take the photos from my book, but it didn't work out that way. And he was very envious of uh, my Minolta camera because he felt that it was better than his uh, Petri there. And finally, this is the man that I would like to see be the next mayor of Rio de Janeiro. This is Zezinho with his uh, two kids. The kid behind, the skinny kid, is not his son. Uh, that's fairly obvious. Uh, Zezinho is a fruit and vegetable merchant. And uh, he's lived in Rocinha for 30 years. He started with a push cart. And he roved the bakos going up and down these mud and then concrete pathways selling vegetables from a push cart and then he made enough money to uh, open a kiosk and this is his kiosk along what's called the Estrada de Gavia and he's very proud of his sons and he makes enough money that he sends his sons to private school which is uh, in, in Rio uh, an important thing to do in, uh, if you want your kids to get ahead the public education system Rio's education system is very backwards. On the primary and secondary level, the public education system stinks. You need to go to private school. But if you do well on the high school exam called the vestibular, you qualify to go to free public university, which is better than going to private university. So it's, it's a very strange system. So, in summary... Let me pull out my notes here. There's no mud hut utopia, all right? I'm not in favor of people living with no water, no sewers, no sanitation, no toilets, no electricity. No one in the modern era should have to live that way. But I do argue that squatters are doing more with less and more efficiently than any government on earth and any development on earth. They mix more mortar and lay more brick than anyone. And the key is to let them harness their own abilities. Now, in, if I were a prosecutor, I would be trying to show that, uh, what is it, motive means an opportunity that uh, you always want to show that the defendant had. Well, the squatters have the motive. Society denies them a place to live. They need to come to the cities to make money. They can't get a place to live in the city, but they can get a job, so they seize land and build for themselves. They have the means, because they're willing to labor for themselves to create the home they want, and they do it in a very efficient way because they're patient. When they don't have money, they don't build. When they do have money, they build one wall at a time. And many of the huts that uh, I've shown you in these photos uh, were literally constructed one wall at a time when people had the money. What they lack and what they have to fight for and what we governments around the world can give them is the opportunity. Governments need to meet them halfway, provide infrastructure and materials and a certain amount of construction expertise, and the squatters will do the rest. So, there's a tremendous amount of capacity out there in squatter communities. 
And if we can turn ourselves around from looking at these communities as emblems of misery to looking at them as possibilities, and if we, instead of blindly, without any quid pro quo, forgiving the debt of developing countries, can say to those countries, yeah, well, forgive your debt if you provide infrastructure to all your people. If you run water pipes into the areas where people don't have water, um, that would go a long way to having these communities develop and flourish and become better places for people to live. So that's what I wanted to say, and I'd be happy to take all of your questions. Thanks. Rob, they've secretly been furnishing me questions all along here, so I'm okay. going to pass some of those on, and then Kevin is going to... We got a lot of questions in a huge crowd. I don't know if it was the squatter cities or the medieval angle that brought everybody out. Uh, here's one from Ryan. Is that the Ryan I know? No, different Ryan. Uh, while property ownership is not an option in these squatter cities, are residences still considered private property and bought and sold and rented accordingly? Yes, uh, that's the short answer. Uh, uh, I guess I should give a little explanation. Um, absolutely, people buy and sell and establish value and create a marketplace, um, even without ownership. So in a sense, they are recognizing possession and buying and selling possession rather than buying and selling property. And indeed, in a place like Brazil, um, they've actually created forms which they showed me, which are memorializing the buying and selling of possession rather than property. Um, and this happens in almost all of the squatter communities. And people also rent uh, with the same uh, kind of arrangement. So among the informal economic activities, does that include lawyers? Or how do they sort out disputes? Um, they don't generally turn to lawyers. It's kind of a community dispute resolution mechanism. They just sort of uh, argue it out. Um, in Brazil, occasionally, they will actually go to the drug lord and ask him to sort out the disputes. Um, and uh, there are occasions when they work with the government, if they have to. Um, but those are rare because the government doesn't tend to be on their side. So it's more just they sort of hash things out on their own and figure it out. Uh, this may lead to the next question uh, from Anonymous. Uh, can you say something about communication within the squatter villages? They have cell phones, phones, uh, things like okay. that. Um, not a lot. Uh, they communicate the way, the old-fashioned way. They go talk to each other. Um, the, most of these countries, the, the, to get a phone wire is incredibly bureaucratic and, and, and uh, incredibly expensive. They're jumping right from the wired world to the mobile world. But mobile phones are relatively expensive. Uh, to buy a mobile phone new in any of these countries costs about 100 bucks, And that's just way beyond the means of most squatters. The only place where many, many, many squatters have mobile phones is Turkey, where 
there's a brisk business in used or stolen mobile phones, and uh, many, many of my friends had mobile phones. Uh, but otherwise, uh, you know, people walk and knock on doors and go talk to each other, and there isn't a lot of uh, uh, technical uh, capability within the communities. It's kind of a practical question. Uh from Nameless, uh, who probably is going to get on a plane and try to do what you did, because they want to know, how did you do what you did mechanically? How do you go from stepping off a plane to living in a squatter neighborhood? How do you find a vacancy? Uh, do you have to explain why you and American want to live there? Do you encounter resistance, suspicion? You know, what's all that about? Um, <clears throat> well, it's, uh, it's kind of six degrees of separation. Uh, you send out emails and one person refers you to another person, refers you to another person, refers to you, you to another person. Uh, what happened with me, the first country I went to was Brazil. And I emailed, I, I got contacts with the, all the people that I could uh, uh, get in contact with, a lot of academics and people like that. No one knew anything. Everyone was horrified that I was going to live in a favela because the strange thing is that most of the academics who study them never go to them. Um, it's, a, it's sad but true. So, and finally one person said to me, well, there's this crazy American guy who's been hanging out in Cocina for a while off and on. Why don't you email him? And I did. And he said, sure, come on down. Um, and I had to trust that he was the right guy. Um, so th in the first country, I had an American who was completely fluent in Portuguese. He's now a professor of uh, Portuguese uh, at uh, Oklahoma University and is going to uh, San Diego State next year. Um, but he was down there, and he was establishing an educational foundation which he's uh, still raising money for. And so he brought me right into the community and he had some street credibility there. In the other uh, countries, I had to go there. I had some contacts, but I had to go there and live in hotels for about a week or two before I could make the contacts within the communities to be able to move in. And uh, I generally uh, worked through um, church groups or... Uh, agencies that uh, had some dealings with them, but I had to get to uh, the squatters themselves to be able to find places to live. Um, the best story of that was in Kenya. Uh, I show up in Kenya and I, my contact there was a missionary uh, for Mary Noel, who was working as a lawyer, uh, giving legal advice, not filing lawsuits, but just giving dispute advice in a church in the squatter community of Kibera. And I showed up and she said, great, nice to have you here. I'm leaving for a two week vacation in Tanzania, but here's this guy, Nicodemus, I'd trust him with my life. And I found out later that she hardly knew the guy. <laughs> but I decided, all right, he's, he's the right guy. He seems to have volunteered to take me on. And in fact, he was the right guy, and he became uh, just an incredible friend and brother and ombudsman uh, in, uh, in that time there. So if you're open enough to it, and, and then he worked with me to negotiate where I was going to live, um, and that's often how it worked for me.
So that's a sort of thumbnail description. So we have uh, so many questions. We're kind of doing a little tag team in okay. asking them here. Go ahead. So here's another utilitarian question um, from Shells, it looks like. What if um, one wanted to actually build a home there and find a place to occupy? Is that difficult to do, and what do you do? How do you go about it? Do you have to ask? Well, I mean, it, it, it's tricky. I, I think initially uh, you didn't have to ask. You just went and did it. Um, as the communities have gotten more crowded, there's become more of a procedure that you need to go through. And uh, you generally have to, I mean, in Rosinia, you actually have to, most of the property is possessed by someone, although not legally owned, and you have to arrange with that person to buy it. Um, in, uh, in Turkey, there are some squatter communities where there's still space and you can just take it. Um, but you do have to make some arrangements with the neighbors because you're going to have to live with them and so they're going to have to be comfortable with who you are and what you're doing. Um, and uh, sadly in Kenya, the uh, squatters, I call them squatters, but they're not really squatters. The whole situation in Kenya is just so totally corrupt. The land is, not, is, is governmentally owned. The government through a sort of corrupt patronage deal, sells temporary occupation licenses to rich people who erect mud huts and rent them to the new arrivals. So very few of the 500,000 to a million people living in Kibera are actually squatters. Most of them are renters being exploited by rich people. And the reason why uh, rich people do that is because it's a great investment. You can build a mud hut for next to nothing and then all the money you earn is just gravy. Um, so it's a weird scenario. I guess the, the idea of uh, how you establish yourself in these communities varies a little bit from country to country uh, depending on uh, the, uh, how long the squatter community has been there. There are areas in India where I could set up a tent if I wanted to and then there are other squatter communities where I would have to work out uh, um, you know, whether that was going to be permitted because the communities are more dense. Thanks. Here's a question from um, Mike Ratner. Okay, great. It says, I'm a member of Engineers Without Borders, a group of volunteers that work to develop technologies relevant for the third world and sends members abroad. What problems in the squatter cities do you think may have technological solutions, if any? Mm. I'm not an engineer, but personally my thought would be it's not technology that's the issue. The issue really is infrastructure. Um, people build what they can build. And when they have security of tenure, they rebuild and build again and build again as they have the money to do it. So, um, and as you can see from some of the slides in Turkey, they build pretty well once they develop that sense that they're going to be able to stay and that they've had the money over time. I guess the technology that would be important would be kind of infrastructure planning. Um, if people could figure out how to bring water pipes or sewers into communities um, and thus some of the money for designing those kinds of systems might be uh, uh, saved, 
maybe that would help the municipalities do uh, uh, a better job at bringing uh, infrastructure in. But, you know, I've, I've, I've had some of these arguments, you know, people want, you know, wouldn't the internet make a difference in uh, squatter communities? And it's not that people don't use the internet if it's around, it's just that it's not their most primary need. Uh, their most primary need are the basic uh, necessities that uh, we all understand, water and sewers and electricity and uh, those kinds of things. And uh, those systems exist, they're just not brought into the squatter communities by the governments around them. So I don't think, sadly, I don't think that technology is uh, the important solution here. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.